Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jillian Lauren. Annabelle Gerwich is an actress and author of You Say Tomato, I Say Shut Up, a self-hurt marital memoir with her husband Jeff Kahn and Fired, a book and documentary. She co-hosted Dinner and a Movie on TBS for six years, anchored the award-winning HBO series Not Necessarily the News, and appeared on TV shows including Dexter, Boston Legal, Seinfeld, Oprah, Bill Maher's Real Time, and The Today Show. Live, she has appeared at the New York Comedy Festival, UCB, the Geffen Playhouse, and the Moth Main Stage, as well as a long career in unheated, off-off, nowhere-near-Broadway theaters. <laughs> She was a regular commentator on NPR for numerous years and a humorist for the nation. Her essays appear in three humor anthologies and Los Angeles Magazine, LA Times, Moore, Harper's Bazaar, and Marie Claire. She is the author most recently of the wonderful I See You Made an Effort. I met Annabelle because we share an office at Suite 8, which is a co-working space for writers here in Los Feliz. We're basically a bunch of freelancers looking to get out of the house and away from our children, pets, spouses, cousins, and seeking a community of our peers. Annabelle's desk is perpendicular to mine, so I consider myself sort of informally accountable to her <laughs> because I cannot, with any sort of self-respect, watch too many cat videos while she, while she is watching me and writing a beautiful book like this one. And one of the perks of being around a talented bunch of writers is you have a captive bunch of editors for your work, and you also ha always have good material to read. And I was lucky enough to read I See You Made an Effort when I was in New York. And it caused me many, many times to burst out in spontaneous laughter on the subway, uh, which is always a little embarrassing, spontaneous, spontaneous public emotional leaks, uh, but they also always give me a sense of connection, not just to the people around me, but to my own humanity, which is pretty much emblematic of this book. In this book, Annabelle stares down aging, this invisible thing, this thing that most of us are complicit in keeping quiet about because we want to pretend it isn't happening. And like all best writing, it mines the self we want to keep hidden with vulnerability and grace. 
Whether she is talking about sick friends, aging parents, joining a UFO cult, or shopping for moisturizer at Barney's, <laughs> she turns an eye to it that is both hilarious and heartfelt, refusing to go quietly into invisibility. <laughs> she says, I've had things injected in my face that I wouldn't clean my house with. <laughs> and she says, the mothers I had grown up with were disappearing before my eyes. And nothing is as strenuous as effortlessness. <laughs> and she's talking about her wardrobe in the book, but I think that this could just as easily apply to writing. And it has been a great gift in my life to sit next to Annabelle and strenuously strive together for this elusive effortlessness. With this, she beautifully succeeds, and it inspires me to keep reaching and also once in a while to exchange cat videos. Please welcome Annabelle Gerwich since 1961. Oh, thank you, Jillian. Well, um, I want to say, you know, this is the first night of the book tour for this book, and I've already learned something. Don't have Jillian Lauren introduce you. Who can follow that? This is a mistake. You know, really, have some very, very, very unpoetic introduction because I'm like, Jesus Christ, how can I follow that? And I just want to say, um, we do, we have this little writing group, um, this uh, Sweet Eight group, and we're, we're down the street, and Jillian is a very loud typer. I just want to say that. And she also, and an angry, she's an angry typer. Skip loud, she's an angry typer. And... Um, she also turned me on to that French cat video, which is a mistake. You just, I mean, really, I, I would have finished this book. See, I started this book when I was 49, and I had this idea, okay, I'll have it come out when I'm 50, and it'll be so great because I'll be like, oh, I'm turning 50. Well, actually, it took me two years because of that fucking French cat video that I watched over and over again. They're playing patty cake, and they're speaking French, and they're cats, and I mean, between the whole thing, it took me two years long than I expected to write this book. So thank you, Jillian. Um, and yeah, and actually it took me two years to, to write the book, but I still had to call it Survival Stories from the Edge of 50 because Survival Stories from the Edge of 53, it just didn't sound right. Survive, what? She's 53 now. Huh. It sort of makes you think too much about the title. Um, this book, I, and, and it, by the way, I, I posted something on Facebook tonight which is that... Um, you know, it means so much to be here and launch this book in Los Feliz here at Skylight because I'm within walking distance uh, from the store. And actually, if you live in this neighborhood, you've probably seen me. I'm, I, I hate exercising. And, you know, you have to get the amount of exercise you need for a woman of a certain age. And so what I'll do is I will walk to the restaurant, to Figaro down the street, and then I'll make myself run home because I don't have a car. You know, and So everyone in this neighborhood has seen me running barefoot because I have the high heels in my hands. And so I'm like the crazy lady who runs home from restaurants in the neighborhood. They just kind of like, yep, there she goes. I'm like, I'm old. I have to do this. Um, but as I said on Facebook, everything I'm wearing, just a little shout out for the neighborhood, I bought within a two block radius. This is locally sourced. 
And I just want to say, and that, you know, I wonder about people in Los Feliz because I bought these Roberto Clergerie uh, shoes for $25 at the half-off store. Now, th th did they not understand how much money? Are they such East Siders that they don't know Roberto Clergerie people? This was, it was, I sh should have paid them more. I mean, it was kind of like, I feel a little guilty. I ripped them off. Um, so this book um, actually started thanks to a bunch of women who are here tonight. Uh, Sandra Singlow, Erica Schickel, Nancy Rommelman, who's now in, uh, in Portland, and uh, that's okay, Harvey, I love you anyway, um, and uh, Amy Alcon, and uh, am I missing somebody? Samantha Dunn in, in Orange County, a couple years ago, Sandra made this group and she called us the bad girls of LA literary something. And we're like, that's a terrible name. But, <laughs> but we all, but it stuck. And um, I started, I was writing this series of essays and I was reading it at our, at our group and it really kept me going. And your, uh, your generous laughter, there was a lot of wine a lot of wine involved, let's just say it, um, kept me writing this collection of, of essays which became this book. And in fact, I did not set out to write a book about aging. It just turned out that what happened was <clears throat> in, these, in these collection of stories I was writing, I realized that all these things that were happening to me uh, after there were about four essays that were completed, I was like, oh my God, this is a, it's actually a midlife crisis going on here. It, it didn't occur to me till after these stories were already, you know, part, part, of the, part of the collection was already written. And I was working at the Sweet Eight Writers Room and um, everyone else was freezing and I was sweating. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, okay, I kept saying to Karina, like, can you please? And they're like, this lady is angry. I don't know if she can say in this group, can you please turn the air conditioning up? What is going on here? And I was like, oh my God, it's me. I am having like, you know, hot, hot flashes here. So that, that was my realization that there you are. You know, I was like driving everyone crazy because you're like, we're, we're wearing sweaters and blankets, Annabelle. It's you. So that was when I, I realized that what I was trying to do in this collection is to capture, as Jillian said, this sort of growing invisibility that one can feel. And the this moment, and it's, and it's not, you know, it's the, really how you look is really the tip of the iceberg. It, it's much greater than that. It's a cultural shift. It's the aging of, of America, which is a, just a sexy phrase. It's almost as sexy as saying that I go to a, a rheumatologist now. There's no way I actually wrote about my osteoarthritis. You can't, you can't make it sexy. You just try it. it just, it doesn't work. Um, but these things, you know, our, our biology is catching up with us, even though our psychology, our society still has us in this, in, the, you know, we, we grew up in this, uh, world where Clairol commercials told us, you're not getting older, you're getting better. That was a fucking lie. We, I might be getting better, but I'm getting older. It, you know, big surprise, Clairol lied to us. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to capture all these, all these um, aspects of this realization that, in fact, in, in my opinion, we do a really big disservice to ourselves when we say things like 30 is a new 20, 40 is a new 30, 50 is a new 40. Well, in my opinion, 50 is just a new 50. We don't really know what that means. We don't really know how that should look, how that should feel, where we fit into society. We know we're never going to retire because we can't afford to do that. We know we're working for 
forever. Um, but uh, I wanted to, you know, embrace that idea. And um, I'm going to read something from the book. And it's something I probably won't read while I'm on tour because it's a story about Los Angeles. And I always. I can say this because we're in Los Angeles, right? So I always feel a little funny about that, you know, about writing about life in Los Angeles because people have this um, uh, expectation that you're writing about Hollywood. And I write in the book, I live Hollywood adjacent, sort of in the shadow of Hollywood. I live in the world where I'm stuck in traffic and I look up on a billboard from someone I, with someone I worked with once and, and I can't believe that I shared the same air with them or, or drank out of their, their uh, water bottle when we worked together years ago. And you know, it's a different world, but in any case, what I mean is I, I probably won't read this story on the road because um, I only, there's only, Los Angeles really only figures into two stories in the book, but uh, I wanted to read that tonight. So here is, a, and, and also this, um, this chapter is, it does, it is, it's about class and about money, and this has always been a topic that I, I've wanted to write about, and I never really have. I grew up um, believing I was very wealthy, <laughs> and it turned out to not be true, <laughs> kind of like the Clairol commercials. Um, if you saw the movie American Hustle, I was, uh, I, that was my life. Um, I was a child of the, uh, of the hustle, and so, um, I had a very different expectation about what my life would be. And I found in Los Angeles, it has a lot to do with which side of the 405 freeway you're on, or, or, or Doheny, you know, the, the divide between east and west. So this is a chapter that is, um, that is, that goes out to Los Angeles. So, and um, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So the title of this chapter that this excerpt is from is called The Scent of Petty Theft. The rich are different from you and me. Fitzgerald's line repeats in my head as I pull my dusty Prius into the driveway at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. It has been years since I have been a guest in such an opulent setting, but I am neither intimidated nor overly impressed because I am as comfortable at my corner burrito stand, that's yuccas, as I am at a five-star hotel. I have transcended class. I am an artist. This is the narrative I have crafted for myself since I was 19 and flat broke in New York City. I didn't see it then, but it was my youth and a certain amount of beauty, style, really, and the promise of a big career that allowed me to travel between classes. This combination can give you an all-access pass to the enclaves of the wealthy, but there is a time limit, a grace period you're allowed when the future is ahead of you before people in your industry start saying things like, I'm so impressed with all the ways you stay creative. <laughs> Which translates to, it's astounding that your body hasn't been found decomposing in a flea bag motel in the high desert. <laughs> I am not becoming anything anymore. It's that kind of thudding honesty that occurs at 50, and it's the kind of thing that can lead to petty theft. I've arrived to discuss my duties at a charity event being held at the hotel that evening. 
There's a certain irony that I have been asked to forego my standard fee at this black tie event where most of the women will be wearing gowns that cost more than I typically earn in a month or maybe six. But it's a worthy cause and I readily signed on. We sit down in a cozy alcove and I sit I sip what is probably the most expensive latte I have ever ordered. How do I know that? Because the price is written in Arabic. <laughs> We're discussing the event, but I am distracted. It's as cold as a meat locker. Glancing around, I see that I am surrounded by expensively maintained skin, capped teeth, and two sure signs of wealth. Women with hair so blonde and so immovable, it can only be described as starch. And though we are nowhere near a body of water, 75% of the gentlemen present wear nautically themed jackets. Brass buttons polish to perfection. Monica, the catering manager who I'm introduced to, is professionally beautiful in the way that every woman working here is today. Tall, in good shape, but not so beautiful that she takes up space in your head. <laughs> She doesn't even blink an eye when I blurt out, isn't this the bar, isn't this bar supposed to be a good place to meet high-end hookers? Which one of these women are prostitutes, do you think? <laughs> this happens to be the hotel where Julia Roberts hooked her way into Richard Gere's heart in Pretty Woman. What? I've never heard that, she says. It's an overshare, but I can't take it back. So I add, can I have your card? It's just so nice to meet you. Blandiful Monica hands me her card and notes that if I ever need anything, just to let her know, oh, I will, I say, dropping her card into my bag where it will join the bottom of purse lint, cookie crumbs, crushed vitamins, crumpled notices from my son's PTA until the day I change purses maybe two years from now. I can't imagine why I would ever need to call her except to ask for a job application. <laughs> I want this lunch to last forever. Bouquets of flowers are exploding from vases on both sides of our table, and I am gripped with a sense of dread that this might be the last time I will be invited into a place where even the air smells expensive. <laughs> It turns out that it is not the flowers that are perfuming the air. Hotels have started pumping fragrances through their air vents to aromatically enforce their brand. The Beverly Wilshire's aroma, purple water, <laughs> has been designed by Asprey, the British line specializing in both jewelry and polo equipment, <laughs> has been designed to reach into your reptilian brain and mimic the smell of old money. <laughs> it has notes of leather, cigars, and cooked peas. <laughs> If odor had corporeal form, purple water would be wearing an ascot. It taps a memory deeply buried in my subconscious. Before my family moved to Florida, where I grew up, we lived in a series of small apartments in Wilmington, Delaware. The units had 1970s avocado-colored plasticky kitchens, wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, even in the bathrooms. <laughs> This was an improvement from camping out at my Aunt Gloria's house where we landed after losing our home in Alabama. 
The Florida move marked a major step up for us. Our new residence was located on one of the exclusive man-made islands in Biscayne Bay, right off of Miami Beach. A uniformed guard was stationed 24-7 at the gated entrance of the bridge leading to the islands. I gleefully bounded into the house and lay down, pressing my face into the cold, polished hardness of the white tiles in the 800-square-foot living room. We're rich, I reveled, even though our cottage-style home was modest compared to the surrounding estates. It was like we'd been living in black and white and had suddenly woken up in technicolor. I couldn't know it at age 10, but it was to a large extent an illusion. We were floating on a sea of debt. Our wealth was as artificial as the island we resided on. We were also the only second Jewish family to move onto Sunset Islands. The first, a prominent local Jewish family, had to sue the Island Association to gain permission to live there. Upon our arrival, I made fast friends with Shelby, a longtime island resident my age. She and her mother, Gigi, were long, <laughs> not their real names, <laughs> were long, lanky blondes with sharp, bird-like patrician features who wore faded fruit and flower-printed A-line shifts. 30-foot Doric columns framed their colonial-style mansion. There was little furniture, but even I could tell it was important. High-backed winged armchairs, heavy crystal chandeliers, and leather-bound books. That first summer, I enjoyed long, sweaty days at Shelby's. They didn't believe in air conditioning. Polishing her mother's silver and skimming the leaves from their kidney-shaped backyard pool. After my mother learned that I was essentially working as their maid, <laughs> that home was off limits to me, and I rarely saw Shelby again during the remainder of the eight years which I lived there. They would drive by in their ancient wood-paneled uh, station wagon, and I would wave to them as they headed off to the surf club, a club whose membership excluded Jews. While I played touch football in the island park with the kids from the island's other Jewish family. Years later, I recognized Shelby's colorful smocks as Lily Pulitzer's. It's just too bad I didn't stuff one of those dresses into my pocket while cleaning their silver. It could be worth something today. The smell of their home stuck with me. It turns out, I couldn't put my finger on it then, but it turns out to have been cooked peas, cigars, and leather. <laughs> old money. In this case, really old money. So old, it was barely there. The hotel's purple water works its magic on me, and I hear myself announcing that I'm going to be so tired after the event that I will need to stay overnight. <laughs> and remarkably, the event planner agrees to this, and after lunch, I head up to my suite. My hotel room 
is, a, is well appointed and maintained in a way that my home, built in 1932, will never be, with its corners that don't meet exactly. There are no watermarks on the suite's tables. No cats have sharpened their claws on the upholstery. The walls bear no children's handprints or bicycle skid marks. In fact, the paint looks so fresh, I have to touch it to determine it's not damp. The room has not one, but two balconies, and the bathroom was so sparkling clean, I might be the first person to ever use it. It also has a fixture that I always think of as a true sign of luxury. A, a, a heavy door separating the toilet from the rest of the facilities. It's like Vegas. What happens in there stays there. <laughs> I open a bottle of Asprey hair conditioner in the bathroom and I inhale deeply. I've got Fitzgerald's line stuck in my head. The rich are different from you and me and we will know them by their scent. No, it can't be that, but it also seems true. I proceed to stuff every single bath product into my purse and call down for more. It's a pattern for sure. I took home rolls of toilet paper from the nightclubs where I worked in the 1980s, yellow legal pads from the offices of each TV series that employed me in the 90s. And there was that time that I was sent to audition for the director, John Hughes, in a hotel in New York. I recall waiting in the outer foyer with an actress who I assessed as so plain, though I greatly admired her stage work, that I was genuinely saddened that she'd never work in film or television. That actress was Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> After John candidly admitted to me to not seeing me in the role, I thanked him, and on my way out, I stopped to use his bathroom. I stole every amenity in plain sight and a few more from the housekeeper's cart in the hallway. I couldn't stop myself then and I can't stop myself now. Thank you. Okay, so thank you, thank you. Um, are there any questions? No, no, not even about the Panthea Pinot Noir, which is about things like this. Yes. Okay, so um, my sister. I mean, I. Uh, you know, I, I really thought a lot about what I was writing because my parents are still alive until they read the book, which will probably kill them. And um, when my sister read the book, she said to me, and my sister is a very practical person, she, you know, growing up in a household like this, and the book does, you know, the book is really about this moment in time, but I did end up finding I had to write some... Someone liked the wine. I had to write some aspects of memoir into it, so there are there is some family history in there. And uh, my sister and I went in different paths, like you know, from this background. She's a, a lawyer and a banker, a very practical person. So she said, "Adam, I have a great idea. I want you, I, hi, Daddy. I want you to uh, send Mom and Dad a copy of the book digitally and delete everything about them in it. They'll never know. They'll read that version." And I thought, well, that's a great idea, 
But, you know, maybe some, but they're like, you know, can we invite our friends in Miami where we live? You know, and someone's going to read that and go like, how did you feel about, you know, Annabelle saying that you had two mortgages that you owed money to Phil Rizzuto in the money store, which I reveal in the, but which I couldn't believe. I, you know, I, oh my God, we owed money to Phil Rizzuto in the money store. Um, so um, luckily they are older short-term memory doesn't last long and I, I am hoping and then the good news is there is no inheritance so I can't be disinherited um, but I, I, I did really try to sort of think about what I was saying and, and I, I softened certain things and, and I, I hope to write about that more um, in, a, in a few years when they you know get about. but I, you know it is you know like everyone every writer you know you, you, you have you, you think about these things and so there were some things that were tempered why, yes, lady. Why don't you talk a little bit about how writing a book is not just writing a book, but this now part that you're engaged in in our world of publishing today, how you really have to do Oh, do we, oh, should I? Uh, uh, so, uh, Claudette Sutherland, Claudette is one of my my my, my readers, who is just gives me um, uh, grief. What are you doing here? You know, why are you really accomplishing something? Is great friend. Uh, she was asking about the whole publishing world and the process you go through writing these days. And you know, I mean, it is it is a, it is an I'm going to move over a little bit. It is, a, you know, it is a, it is a, a lot of you out here are are, are writing um, compadres of mine, so we all know it, it is this crazy thing. Sandra, saying Logo had to leave, just said, I'm trying to figure out the Twitter, you know, and if you say the Twitter or the Facebook, it means you really should buy several copies of this book because you're in that age range. I mean, you know, this is, this is a, a, a different world that we live in, and um, I think there's just a lot of bargains that we all make about how you spend your time and I, I was um, at an event the other night that Gary Steingart who I, I'm just kind of obsessed with his writing was saying uh, he wished he had two uh, brains one that was uh, on the you know the social media brain and one that was the writer's brain because I think it's just it's so hard it's so hard to think in little bites and to, and it's such a distraction and it's so addictive and it, it's just and it's like an anxiety that rolls around in your head that I do enough that I said I yeah what because it's endless, the inner that that interweb. Why well, say that thing's on twenty four hours a day? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it is, it, and you just feel like once you enter that world, you know, and this, it, it's it's crazy the amount of uh, engagement that uh, a writer has to make when you're trying to think long and think hard and think deeply. And I, I think it is just the challenge of our time. And it'll be really interesting to see younger writers. I mean, but then, you know, there are these amazing younger writers that, that seem to be doing it. They, they live in that world and they still write. So somehow their brains are just wired differently than ours. I feel like I'm in a transitional generation. Uh, and it's harder probably for us than it might, you know, this, the millennials or as I like to tell my son, as I, you know, I did not coin this phrase, but the shallows. <laughs> I prefer that to millennials because I see him on that, you know, on the, um, on the Snapchat, on, on on the Snapchat is not the Snapchat on Snapchat. Um, so you know, I think it's I think it's really hard, long long thinking, short thinking. And for me, I started out really writing. My first job as a writer was working at NPR, and I could only think in six hundred word pieces. Six, so you know, you know, just it was so tight. And so writing longer now, deeper, it just requires 
a lot more cat video time. <laughs> a lot more cat videos. A lot more time. There was a question. Yes. Have you been doing any other writing since completing this book? This is like a three-part question. Have you been doing any other writing since completing this book? Do you have a sense that you exercise enough of this theme to move on to another theme? And is there anything that's emerging now in your thoughts? <laughs> that's a great... Uh, I have... I No, I, I have... I, I, yes, no, yes. <laughs> How about that? Um, so I do feel like I have uh, said... Just about all I want to say, although is my experience as a writer and, and you know I'm sure you could tell me how you feel about this, all the other writers here, um, that I would like to rewrite every just about every line in the book now um, because I you know I, there's things I feel I got around, things I didn't get around, my head around so I'm, 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 I'm really pleased with a few of the sentences. Oh wait, I want you to buy this book. What am I saying? No I, uh, but, I, but I feel like this topic has been pretty much um, covered by me. I mean, the thing is, of course, I've been writing uh, assignments for magazines and essays and op-eds that will appear at different places on that topic. So I've had just about enough of spanks and granny panties to, to last a while. But I, but I really do feel passionate about the topic because it's, and I feel like it's not just my story. It's a story about this moment in time. And um, that, so I'm, I'm really, I, I mean, you can't write a book if you're not really interested in it, in the subject, because you just fade out. You can't sustain it. You, you, you just wouldn't have the, the stuff behind it. So, um, but that's not what I'm, my next thing is I am, I'm really interested, uh, a cousin of mine, um, I come from a really big family, and uh, so there's someone who does everything, but she, she does, uh, she works in uh, grief therapy, this is really funny, I'm just going to say, and she's, she's the therapist who goes in and counsels uh, children um, at uh, sites like Sandy Hook, and, and um, uh, where else, Newtown and stuff, and uh, I, I had, always had this idea, because I've uh, had, I have, you know, I, I have anxiety and that kind of thing, and uh, I've always had this idea that uh, there's a kind of um, you know, theater therapy that could be done with uh, those kids, and she's working at the VA now with post-traumatic stress syndrome and uh, returning vets. So we are collaborating now uh, in a hilarious project. <laughs> It's hilarious about um, working with post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, with uh, veterans and sort of th and theatrical conventions. So that book is going to be so funny <laughs> that uh, it's going to really crack you up. But that's um, that's my. That's the next thing I'm interested in. Just to take, a, I'm a little t tired of me, writing about me right now. I've had, I've had a lot of me, and I think if I was a better writer and I could write fiction, I really admire uh, fiction, and I don't know how people do it. I, I, I just, I get, I read a lot of fiction, and I just <clears throat> admire that genre. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do it. Um, may, maybe, I, I'm hoping that will be my future, though. Yes? Um, <clears throat> I might give the wrong answer here, <laughs> if there's a right and wrong answer. Has being an actress helped me as a writer? You know, uh, 
no. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny. I, mean, I do happen to I think about this every day because I really became an actress. I mean, yes and no. Yeah, I came, became an actress because I really loved language, which is a really stupid idea to become an actress because I ended up working in television, which is about other... And I, when I wanted to work with and see one person's vision through, I liked the idea of the director and seeing this vision through. I started in theater, as we did, Christina, in New York. And, um, and that, of course, is the opposite of what you end up doing. I ended up working in television with, you know, committees and, and that it's the exact opposite of what I meant to do and where the language wasn't. I, you know, I was working in Shakespeare and that kind of thing. So I always loved language. But the thing that I found I means such a different life, the life of a writer versus the life of an actress. And I have had to, it's been a big adjustment for me being a working in a collaborative sense in a social group um, which is why I also do love our, our sweet eight group because I get dressed <laughs> and I see other people who look like they're working and who are working really uh, and it, it, you know it, it, I found it to be just a whole different you know attunement the, 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 the loneliness the, the long hours alone with your work I, I've relished it and I really have embraced it as a dis as a discipline, and I just want to do. I want to. I want to work work at it and get better at it. I want to be a better writer. That's my goal. In the same way that I wanted to be a better actress, and so I'm I'm really dedicated. But I, I found it's been really hard. It's that that difference in the world. And now when I get to act, John Sloan, I don't know if you're still here, we did a play together at the Geffen last year. I think I was a little too enthusiastic, Lily. I was like, eh, people! <laughs> oh my God, people every day! People! And Lily and I shared a dressing room. I was just like so happy. I'm like, oh, let me get in your life. And you know, it was, it was like too too much, Annabelle. Like, hey, wait, slow down here. You know, but it was, uh, it was really fun for me um, to be in that environment Again, because it's such a long, a long road, and you know when you're acting, it's like, and then we're rehearsing, and then here we are, or you know. But the book, you know, oh, the, the for the for two years of a long birth or or longer. I mean, people who write better than me spend even longer researching books. Um, so you know, it's it's been a complete like a personality shift and has required more coffee than I ever imagined I could consume. But I manage. Some people say they've never seen me without a coffee cup, but I, I, I switched to Pinot Noir at a certain time of the day. So it's been hard. It's been a challenge, but I, I like a challenge. Do one last question. Okay. Um, Annabelle, I'm not 22 anymore. We're in the same age bracket. And, and there's sometimes I have a conversation with someone who's 20 something. And I have this whole thing of, here's what I wish you knew. So I, I sometimes feel like because it's a book about not being 22, it's a book about being 50, that 22 isn't going to buy it. Why should 22 buy it? Because I know we know, now that we're not 22, why all of what you've written and as funny as you've written it, what's your thought about? OK. Uh, they should buy it for their mothers. <laughs> Because I'm not sure they should buy it, uh, for, except for their mothers. Because I mean, I'm just gonna. This is not. This is not a good selling tool. Don't listen to me. But you know, there are some things you, maybe you just don't need to hear when you're younger. And besides the fact you can't hear it, I mean, I actually write that in the book that it's like a high-pitched dog whistle that you could be saying this over and over 
again about, and you know, this will happen, you know, that's happen. And you won't hear it. If I had heard it, I would have known that my grandmother had arthritis in her hands. But somehow, I never heard her say it. So what I was like, was like, and the doctor, rheumatologist, <laughs> said to me, do you have this in your family? I went like, what? She said, oh my God, that's what she was talking about. I never heard her because I was so young. I couldn't hear that sound of the things about the age things. You know, so, so in a way, I mean, this is just terrible, but people, if you're, if you're around that age, your mother needs this book, your, your older sister, your cousin, your Sylvia, your whoever you know who's older, but, you know, maybe we should shield them a little bit because, we, you know, we want to protect that youth. We want to just keep it going. You know what I mean? It's like childbirth. You cannot tell people how, and, and no, not even just childbirth. Fuck childbirth. Raising these children. <laughs> My son is a teenager. I can say this because he's not here. Because I'm because I'm here. Why would he be here? Because I'm here, right? It's a nightmare, people. But if you're in your childbearing years, you won't hear that. No, you won't hear what I just said at all. You'll just say uh, she said something funny. Old lady said something funny. How people left. So, um, so that's that's my little. That's my show. Thank you so much for coming, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.